Tonight's talk is titled, The Gratification, the Danger, and the Escape. So tonight we're going to have a little bit more sutra study. As many of you know, the Buddha gave um, many discourses during his teaching career. And after he died, they were preserved by an oral tradition for about 500 years until they were written down. So because they were preserved in an oral tradition, they're often very repetitious. It's a way that um, one can be assured that the, um, it will be remembered by, by much repetition. So I'm going to read um, some sutra to you, and I'll abbreviate a little bit because we're not quite as used to um, lots of repetition in this ADHD age. So there are actually several short sutras that I will read, um, linked sutras, and then uh, explain them in more detail. So to set the stage, the Buddha has sometimes been called a scientist of the mind. He taught in great detail about how the mind works, about the nature of this mind-body-heart process, the nature of reality. He actually only said a couple of really important things, such as everything changes, but then uh, played out the full implications of these um, basic laws about the nature of reality. So the Buddha talked a lot about what can be known as conditioned reality, and that's this world as we know it, this world as we can directly perceive it. And he broke down conditioned reality in a number of different ways. One way you've already heard, uh, the five aggregates, the body or form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. So that's one way we can describe this mind-body process in this world. In the sutra that I'm going to read and talk about, he broke down reality into the six sense bases and the sense objects. So this is another way that we can describe and understand reality. In a short sutra called The All, at Savati Bhikkhus, I will teach you the all. Listen to that. And what bhikkhus is the all, the eye and forms, the ear and sounds, the nose and odors, the tongue and taste, the body and tactile objects, the mind and mental phenomena. This is called the all. If anyone bhikkhus should speak thus, having rejected this all, I shall make known another all. That would be a mere empty boast on his part. If he were questioned, he would be not able to reply, and further, he would meet with vexation. For what reason? Because because that would not be within his domain. So the all, the whole of reality, the eye and forms, the nose and smells, the body, tactile sensations, the mind, mind objects, 
mind objects including thoughts and emotions and mind states, consciousness, factors of mind, perception. That's the totality of our experience. And the Buddha said, you can't find anything else. So the sutras, the short sutras that I'm going to read, describe how we can relate to this experience of life, the experience of the sense bases and the sense objects. How do we relate and understand these experiences in a way that leads to peace rather than suffering? At Savati again, often in the sutras they start by saying where the sutra took place or the discourse took place. Bhikkhus, before my enlightenment, while I was still a bodhisattva, not yet fully enlightened, it occurred to me, what is the gratification? What is the danger? What is the escape in case of the I? What is the gratification? What is the danger? What is the escape in the case of the ear? In the case of the nose? In the case of the tongue? the body, and the mind. Then because it occurred to me, the pleasure and joy that arise in dependence on the eye, this is the gratification in the eye. That the eye is impermanent, suffering and subject to change, this is the danger in the eye. The removal and abandonment of desire and lust for the eye, this is the escape from the eye. The pleasure and joy that arise in dependence on the ear and the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. This is the gratification in the six sense bases. That the six sense bases are impermanent, suffering and subject to change. That is the danger in the sense bases. The removal and abandonment of desire and lust for the sense bases, this is the escape from the sense bases. So long bhikkhus as I did not know as they really are the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of the six sense bases, I did not claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world. But when I directly knew all of this as it really is, then I claimed to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world. I was thinking today that maybe this is an auspicious talk for the Uposita day, because as I explained in the um, question period this morning, we take the three extra precepts as a practice of renunciation of sense pleasures or sense comforts, in order to highlight our relationship to them, in order to develop understanding of our, you could say, dependence on them for our happiness and to see that there might be another way, there might be an escape, as the Buddha said. So the question again in this sutra is how do we relate to our experience, our lives through the senses in a way that leads to understanding and freedom. So let's start um, 
we'll take the three parts, the gratification, the danger, and the escape. So the gratification. The joy and pleasure that arise in dependence on the eye, this is a gratification in the eye. So he's talking here about the six sense bases and by extrapolation, the six sense objects. So the eye and form, the nose and smell, etc. In Buddhist psychology, we understand a moment of experience as having three parts. There's the sense base, eye, nose, ear, tongue, body, mind. There's the sense object, form, smell, sensations, thoughts. And there's um, the consciousness, the sense consciousness. And they, they come together, the three of them, it said that they ignite and we have a moment of experience. So the eyes, there's a form, there's seeing consciousness, that's a moment of experience. And the gratification, he said, is when that moment of experience provides pleasure, when there's pleasure. So basically he's saying that sense contact can sometimes be pleasurable, which is not um, big news to most of you. And because of this, they provide us some sense of gratification. So there's a kind of happiness or gratification that we get from pleasant sense experience. And we all know this. We might see the beautiful fall leaves and there's a sense of happiness or gratification from that or drink a warm cup of tea on a cool afternoon, eat the delicious lunch. And this kind of um, gratification or happiness is readily available if we pay attention. Many moments of our day we can experience this kind of happiness if we're available, if we're present to the beauty in this world. Meditation even helps us access this kind of happiness as we train ourselves to be more present. We actually connect through our senses and as we connect more and more moments of mindfulness, we're actually present for this kind of pleasure. Many of you may have noticed that as our minds settle, that we find that our senses become more subtle, that um, we can appreciate, for example, a mouthful of, a taste of a mouthful of rice from the beginning to the end as a changing experience rather than just the single taste of rice. Or the many layered smells in the fall air, especially when it's damp. It can be useful to access this level of pleasure when our um, practice has a lot of dukkha in it. It's a way of bringing balance to the mind. The commentaries even prescribe um, very pleasant circumstances for folks suffering from a lot of um, aversion. 
it's um, it, it almost seems extreme. <laughs> they talk, the commentaries talk about um, folks with a lot of aversion should have satin sheets and flowers in their rooms and well, um, uh, handsome servants, and uh, <laughs> it goes on and on. <laughs> and the idea is not to get caught in it, obviously, we'll talk about that later, but to bring balance to the mind when there's a lot of suffering. We need some balance. It, it energizes us. It soothes us so that we can keep going. That's why it's prescribed. So our senses become more refined on retreat and we can access this happiness more easily. Some of you may even find that your senses have become a bit too refined, <laughs> that um, uh, sounds may be louder than um, one wishes, for example. So the Buddha did recognize that, yes, um, Things and experiences, sense experiences, can bring us some kind of happiness. There's some joy, there's some comfort, there's some gratification. Raised as a prince, he knew about this in the extreme. He had different, it said that he had different palaces for different seasons with um, uh, all the sense pleasures that a person could want. For many folks, this is kind of the conventional understanding of happiness, this level of happiness. But the Buddha saw that it doesn't solve, it doesn't really solve the, um, the problem of human existence and human happiness. We need to look deeper than this. We can't just leave the subject right here. And another part of the Sutras that I didn't read, the Buddha said, Bhikkhus, I set out seeking the gratification in the eye, the ear, the six sense bases. Whatever gratification there is in the six sense bases, that I have discovered. I have clearly seen with wisdom how far the gratification in the six sense bases extends. So with this, we start to get some sense that there's a limit to this kind of happiness. There is some gratification in sense pleasures, but it only extends so far. He said, I have seen how far this gratification extends. And he goes on to explain where the problem lies. He says, Bhikkhus, if there were no gratification in the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind, Beings would not become enamored with them. But because there is gratification in the eyes and the other sense bases, beings become enamored with them. So this is the problem. Because there is this pleasantness and gratification, we become enamored and attached. You could say we fall in love with sense pleasures. I find it interesting that he chose the word enamored, or at least that's how it was in the translation I read by a very well-respected scholar. He said, because there's gratification, we become enamored with sense pleasures. 
So enamored has a little bit of a mindless sense to it, a kind of sense of getting lost in it. When we're enamored or in love or infatuated, there's some blindness there. We see the good, but we ignore the faults, right? When we're in love, when we're first in love with somebody, everything's perfect. We don't see any faults. We don't even want to hear about faults. If you've ever tried to talk to somebody who's in love and enamored, they don't want to hear about faults and limitations. Don't want anybody to burst the bubble. This is what being enamored does to us. This blindness about sense pleasure seems to me particularly encouraged by Western and maybe even particularly American uh, society where we worship sense gratification. Ajahn Sumedho said, I was brought up in America, the land of freedom. It promises the right to be happy, but what it really offers is the right to be attached to everything. America encourages you to try to be as happy as you can be by getting things. Uh, Patrick Ophuls, in a delightful book called Buddha Takes No Prisoners, he said that um, our society is like frenetically rearranging the deck chairs on the SS Samsara, trying, <laughs> trying to make ourselves happy by acquisition. I do get a certain amount of um, entertainment out of the media and um, how they kind of uh, play on this, uh, kind of the anti-dharma, you could maybe call it. One of my favorites recently is um, from Honda Corporation. It's, um, their tagline is something new to crave. Crave.honda.org. <laughs> <laughs> We get this all the time. <laughs> the most recent one I only discovered a few days ago. Um, I'm not going to tell you which sense pleasure it was because I don't want to get you thinking about it. But the tagline was, the simple joy of obsession. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it that way. <laughs> At first I heard that and I thought it was funny. And then actually I kind of felt disturbed. I was like, oh my God, this is the kind of, you know, this is what we're being taught over and over again. And then I thought, well, you know, if we have to be so convinced over and over again, maybe it means that the seeds of wisdom aren't too far buried. If we have to be continually trained by the media this way, maybe um, the seeds of wisdom are there just waiting to pop up. So we're definitely conditioned by our economic system to um, seek gratification and sense pleasures, but it's also deeply, um, internally deeply conditioned habits of, of the psyche of the mind to seek this gratification. So maybe we find that we want to stay infatuated with sense pleasures maybe like the person in love who doesn't want to hear about uh, their beloved's thoughts, faults. Maybe you don't want to hear the rest of this uh, 
discourse. But when we tell the infatuated person about the danger, they might avoid some pain and suffering if they would just listen. So maybe we should continue with the Buddha's discourse and see what he would like to warn us about. Another way we can think about this investigation into the dangers of the Sixth Sense bases is that it's about developing a mature love for this world. When we are enamored or infatuated with sense pleasures of the world, we're not completely in touch with reality. A mature love must see the beauty and also must see the limitations in what is loved. A mature love sees and accepts things as they are. This is a stronger and more enduring love than blind infatuation. So as we look at the limitations of the gratifications of things of this world, perhaps our love of life as we experience it can become more mature. Perhaps we can be realistic in what we expect out of sense pleasures. So the next part of the sutra, what is the danger of the six sense bases? We talked about the gratification. What is the danger? What is the limitation that the Buddha saw? That the eye is impermanent Suffering and subject to change, this is the danger in the eye, that the ear knows, body, mind, sense bases are impermanent. Suffering and subject to change, this is the danger. One of the basic truths of life and one of the core teachings of the Buddha that we've been talking about is this truth of impermanence or anicca or the changing nature of reality. All that we can experience through the senses is constantly changing. Life is a flowing river and you can't stop the stream. This constant flow of change is described um, beautifully in a book called Zen Seeds, Reflections of a Female Priest, written by a lovely Japanese nun named Shundo Oyama. And in a chapter called Hearing the Voice of the Valley Stream, she writes, the water of the valley stream is always flowing. It races on and on, not pausing for even an instant its sound to me is the sound of time. The sound of time glistens on the riverbed of the universe. Though theirs is a much slower flow, stones, trees, houses, and towns are flowing too. Human beings and all things that have life flow. Thought and culture too flow. That all these appear to be unchanging is an illusion when we listen subconsciously to the sound of flowing water, does it not seem to create a rhythm? 
yet not a single drop of water passes over the same rock twice. And the murmur of water rushing over a rock is constantly changing. Sameness is but an illusion of the human ears, eyes, and mind. Water that has once flowed along a riverbed can never retrace its course. Human life is no different. It is only our mundane eyes and minds that see yesterday as being the same as today. Enlightened eyes and minds should recognize that each moment has a form different than any other moment. So what can we hold on to? We've been seeing this, hopefully, in our practice over and over again, this truth of change, constant change. We only have to watch our, our, be with our minds for one meditation period to see constant change. Ajahn Chah said, all I have learned in the 40 years that I have been a monk, I can sum up in one sentence. All that arises passes away. This I know. 40 years of practice. All that arises passes away. The truth of change. It's our most basic delusion as human beings to hide from this truth. When we look, it's obvious, it's pretty obvious, but we need to see this truth very deeply if we're going to have peace of mind, if we're going to live in harmony with the way things are, if we're going to love this world with wisdom. We must see it happen moment after moment. The Zen Roshi, um, Uchoyama Roshi said, are described practice as active participation in loss. How do we deal with living in a world of constant change, constant loss? It takes a lot of strength to explore this. The rewards, however, are great. The Buddha said that seeing this is the way to freedom of heart and mind. In the Dhammapada, he says, everything changes, nothing stays the same. Having gained this awareness, one is freed from suffering. This is the way of purification. All conditioned things are subject to change. Having fully learned this insight, one is freed from suffering. This is the way to liberation. As long as we don't um, deeply understand this truth of impermanence, we're going to continue to believe that we can find the gratification that we're looking for through sense pleasures. We'll expend our, our life energy pursuing sense pleasures. We'll take our refuge in trying to control life and get caught in attachment to sense pleasures. So our attempts to control 
the world, to experience, sense pleasures continually, brings some gratification, but it fails as an ultimate strategy for happiness and peace because everything changes. You can't stop the flow of the river of change. You can't make pleasantness stay. I remember my first retreat here, this long, that first long retreat, the three-month course. And I remember many mornings spending time looking forward to lunch, one of the main sense pleasures on retreat. So I would look forward to the gratification that lunch was going to bring. And I'd be eating my lunch, and somewhere about two-thirds through the meal, I'd realize that it was going to end. <laughs> and so every time I'd finish the lunch and I'd sit there and go, it's done, it's gone. I was on the eight precepts, right? So I'm like, wow, that's it for the day, you know? And it was a cycle of just like looking, you know, the energy I would expend in the morning thinking about lunch, looking forward to lunch. I would eat lunch, it would be all over, and there would be this letdown. Like, that's it. It's gone. Wasn't going to be satisfying. But I did it day after day. <laughs> the, the habits of conditioning are pretty deep. I don't think I do that on retreat anymore. <laughs> Made some progress. <laughs> So happiness and sense pleasures or gratification of sense pleasures can provide us some comfort and solace, but they're not an ultimate refuge for us. One of my favorite poets is Pablo Neruda from Chile. Um, he expresses the poignancy of this in a short poem. We, the mortals, touch the metals, the winds, the ocean shores, the stones, knowing that they will go on, inert or burning. And I was discovering, naming all these things. It was my destiny to love and say goodbye. What I love about this poem is there's an obvious connection, right? There's a connection and a love and then an understanding that we have to say goodbye over and over. That's the kind of world that we live in. So in his typical scientific manner, the Buddha has set up the problem very clearly. The danger is that we become attached to sense pleasures because of the gratification that they bring, but that they are impermanent, not reliable. They're always changing, and so we suffer if we try to hold on. There's this very restless search. I remember one time when I was teaching in um, Upper Burma, the Skyne Hills area we've mentioned, and one student raised her hand and she had a very simple question. She said, where can we rest? Such poignancy in that question, right? If we're looking for satisfaction in this world through sense pleasures in a changing world, we're not going to be able to rest. We're going to be restless. 
Where can we rest? So the Buddha goes on to talk about resolving this problem. The removal and abandonment of desire and lust for the I. This is the escape from the I. The removal and abandonment of desire and lust for the ear, for the nose, the body, the mind. This is the escape from the six sense pleasures, six sense bases. I think it's interesting that he's chosen the word, word escape. Escape implies that we're caught in somewhere, that we're confined somewhere, and that we become free, that we're in a confined place and we leave it. Sometimes craving has been described as shackles in the heart. There's that sense of being imprisoned. Craving binds the heart, clenches it like a fist. We're shackled and imprisoned by our craving. So the Buddha talked a lot about craving, as you know, many different forms. The kind that he talked about in this sutra is the craving for sense pleasures. There's other kinds that you'll probably hear about uh, later. So he says the way out of our predicament is by abandoning desire or craving or attachment for sense bases, sense objects, sense pleasures. Now, it's interesting, we hear that word abandon, and we often immediately think get rid of. Somehow we put that uh, interpretation on it. But he doesn't say that we have to get rid of the sense bases or the sense pleasures. He doesn't even say that we shouldn't enjoy the experience of the senses. It's not, the sense pleasures themselves are not the problem. But where we do need to look and work is with the desire and attachment to the sense pleasures. So how do we abandon desire and attachment to sense pleasures? The rest of the sutra gives some hints. As long as I did not know directly as they really are, the gratification, the danger, and the escape of these six sense bases I did not claim to have awakened. But when I knew directly all this as it really is, then I claimed to have awakened. To know directly means to experience for ourselves. So we experience for ourselves how we respond to the experiences through the sense doors. We pay attention to sense objects and how we relate to them. So it's not to have somebody explain it to us, but to see for ourselves, to see directly, to know directly in our own experience. That's why we meditate. And so we have the tool of mindfulness to help us in this investigation. What is our direct experience of the senses? How do they change 
How do we experience their arising and passing away? Can we experience this constant flow of change? Can we be with our direct experience of desire when it arises? How does desire feel in the body? How does it feel in the mind? How substantial is it? What happens when we turn mindfulness to it? This is knowing the gratification and danger and escape in our own experience directly. We should never underestimate the power of sense desire. A number of years ago, I was teaching in the Northwest and the place where I taught, sometimes um, the staff liked to make a, a pan of brownies and um, they had the absolute best brownies in the world. To me, they must be somewhat comparable to heroin or something like that, <laughs> though I've never done it, so I don't know. But really, really good brownies. And so one day I had a brownie and um, then I took it, I lived, I had a little cabin, so I took a second one back to my cabin for the next day, right? <laughs> and somewhere along the line, it didn't make it to the next day. I ate the brownie. Sense desire, <laughs> wanting gratification of the senses, right? And I was, um, it particularly hit me. I was just paying attention. I was kind of stunned. I thought, you know, actually, I've been bested by a brownie. <laughs> I said, you know what? I think we need to do that one over again. <laughs> and so the next day, I took a brownie back with the express intent of paying, like, attention to what had, hap what had, what happened that day, but, you know, trying to learn so, um, and to be mindful. So I had this brownie. And I would watch the desire arise, right? A big wave of desire, thinking about the brownie and the chocolate in the brownie. Really good brownie. <laughs> and then I would turn my attention to the desire. So this is what we have to do, because the sense object, if we keep our focus on the sense object, that just keeps um, feeding, right, the desire. But turning the attention to the desire itself, I would notice the desire would arise, and then it would fade. It would kind of dissipate. And then it would arise. And then it would dissipate. And that day, I did not eat the brownie. And um, I felt good about that. There was like, <laughs> there was like that experience of freedom that I could watch the desire rise, watch the desire pass away without having to um, believe it. That was a taste of freedom. So what I didn't do, which is also interesting, is that first day when I ate the brownie, the second brownie, I didn't decide I was a bad person. I didn't get upset. I got curious. And so I repeated it the next day from a place of curiosity and a wholesome desire for freedom. So this is how um, I'm suggesting that we get interested in desire. You know, not from a place of I have to um, uh, somehow dominate this or I'm a bad person if I can't, but curiosity and a wholesome desire for freedom. 
So we grow in wisdom as we go through these experiences. I'm sure you've had some chances here. A retreat is actually an excellent opportunity because um, we don't have many ways to escape from our wanting mind. So we have to sit down and look at it. Charlotte Jokobeck, who's one of my favorite Zen teachers, said that retreat is controlled suffering. (laughs) Or Thomas uh, Merton, the famous mystic, said, um, those who are drawn to solitude don't suffer less, but suffer more effectively. (laughs) (laughs) So I hope you're suffering effectively. I'm sure most of you are suffering. I just hope it's effectively. (laughs) So with mindfulness, we see things as they are. We become interested in our conditioning. We become interested in um, this whole cycle of gratification, danger, and escape. We start to actually see through um, desire. Don't underestimate the simple power of observing it, of seeing that we don't have to obey it or even believe it, seeing that it comes and goes on its own due to conditions. And this way we develop wisdom. So again, in this part of the sutra, the Buddha said the abandonment of desire and lust. So abandon means to set aside doesn't mean to get angry about, our, about desire or craving, doesn't mean to make it bad or to reject it, but to simply learn to let it be, learn how not to get caught in it. Charlotte Joko Beck says, we never lose an attachment by saying it has to go. Only as we gain awareness of its true nature does it quietly and imperceptibly wither away. Like a sandcastle with waves rolling over it, it just smooths out. And finally, where is it? What was it? One friend of mine, a teacher friend, described um, mindfulness of of desire as like poking holes into a piece of fabric. And if you have a piece of fabric, first of all, you can't see through it. But if you poke enough holes in the fabric, you can see through it. Every moment of mindfulness into um, desire or craving, attachment pokes a hole into the fabric, and we start to eventually be able to see through it becomes less opaque, more transparent, loses its power over us. We can become lighter with the wanting mind. I will read a little story. Uh, This is from Sharon's book, um, A Heart as Wide as the World. 
We all like pleasant experiences and are fortunate to enjoy them. But if we become lost in attachment, then enjoyment inevitably turns to clinging and then we suffer. At a Buddhist Christian conference I attended in Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was speaking about a tour of the monastery he had been given earlier that day. He began by saying that he was quite impressed that the monastery was able to support itself through the manufacture of cheeses and fruitcakes. Then in the midst of this formal presentation with television cameras rolling, the Dalai Lama said, I was presented with a piece of the homemade cheese, which was very good, but really I wanted some cake. (laughs) He laughed uproariously and repeated, it was so unfortunate. Really, I was hoping someone would offer me some cake, but no one did. (laughs) His childlike candor was wonderful with nothing manipulative about it. Clearly, he could be quite happy without a piece of fruitcake. And some part of his state of happiness was the very ability to laugh at his desire for cake, as well as being able to speak about it unabashedly before dignitaries of two religions and a television audience. So we can learn uh, some lightness around craving, wanting in the mind. Don't have to take it too seriously. When mindfulness is strong, sometimes the very noticing of the contraction of desire cuts through it and we return to spaciousness. So we become interested if there's this contraction of wanting in the mind, repeatedly point awareness at this contraction, the light of awareness, setting up the conditions for freedom. So much of practice is there clinging in the heart and mind. Tonight, as I was uh, uh, earlier, I was walking. I walked outside when the sun was setting. It was very beautiful. So I wanted to enjoy it. I was born with an aversive nature, so I make sure that I enjoy things to balance my own mind. And so I was watching the sunset, and um, then I got curious about what was really happening. So there was a sunset, and there was the seeing of it, and there was um, some slight tension in the mind. And I realized that I wasn't actually enjoying the sunset. I was trying to enjoy the sunset, which is very different. So there was that attachment of wanting to enjoy the sunset. Noticing that, it released. What's the experience of just enjoying the sunset? So we can get interested in this way. When there's a pleasurable experience, is there? Is there tension in the mind? Is there that contraction of wanting or attachment in any way? What happens when we become aware of it? Sometimes there's a release. Not always, but sometimes. What's it like? What's the mind like free of attachment, free of clinging, even while enjoying? This too we can explore.
So we have not rejected this world with its sense pleasures, but we don't expect them to satisfy us. We practice abandoning the contraction of heart and mind, the contraction of heart and mind and desire that limits the spaciousness of heart and mind. And we have to learn this over and over again. Charlotte Joko Beck again said, practice has to be a process of endless disappointment. We have to see that everything we demand and even get eventually disappoints us. This discovery is our teacher. Now I could see how some of you might find that depressing, um, but I don't. Otherwise, I wouldn't share it with you. Um, this endless disappointment is that, is that playing through of that lunch scenario over and over again in order to um, really get that everything changes and really get that um, letting go is the way to freedom. Trungpa Rinpoche says, Disappointment is a good sign of basic intelligence. It cannot be compared to anything else. It is so sharp, precise, obvious, and direct. If we can open, then we suddenly begin to see that our expectations are irrelevant compared with the reality of the situations we are facing. So positive disappointment, perhaps we can call it playing it through over and over again, stubbornly, but learning as we go. Every moment of non-clinging is a moment of freedom. In the shorter discourse on the destruction of craving, the Buddha preaches to a deva, a heavenly being, who wants to know how, in brief, a bhikkhu is liberated. It's always cute in the sutras when somebody's like, come on, tell me the, the short version, the past version, how in brief a bhikkhu is liberated. A bhikkhu, in this case, will take the liberty to, to call a bhikkhu, all of us here, temporary renunciates on retreat. The bhikkhu becomes learned that anything is not suitable to settle in. He becomes learned, learning all things thoroughly and accurately recognizing all things. When a bhikkhu abides seeing that nothing is worth adhering to, he directly knows everything. Whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant or painful, or neither unpleasant nor pleasant, he abides contemplating impermanence in these feelings. Contemplating thus, he does not cling to anything in this world. When he does not cling, he is not agitated. When he is not agitated, he personally attains nibbana. So in our investigation, we come back to this world of the senses, the world, as we experience it. And we explore how we relate to the world of the senses and the pleasure that it provides. 
our love for this world matures as we learn to accept inevitable change. As we understand the limitations of sense pleasures, we learn that we can experience life like this, like an open palm, rather than a tight and clenching fist. We develop the open heart and mind that's connected with the poignant truth of this fleeting world. We have tastes of a mind that's free of the shackles of craving. We know directly as they really are the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of this world of the senses. I'd like to end with a cold mountain poem from um, Han Shan, the Chinese hermit poet, that describes this free mind. I'll give you, you may not need this hint, but um, in the poem he talks about the six doors, and the six doors are the six sense bases. Just a little hint there. I love this first stanza. There's so much spaciousness in it. Cold mountain is a house without beams or walls. The six doors left and right are open. The hall is blue sky. The rooms are all vacant and vague. The east wall beats on the west wall. At the center, nothing. Borrowers don't bother me. In the cold, I build a little fire. When I'm hungry, I boil up some greens. I've got no use for the farmer with his big barn and pasture. He just sets up a prison for himself. Once he is in, he can't get out. Think it over. You know it might happen to you. Let's, let's sit for a minute or two. Cold mountain is a house without beams or walls. The six doors left and right are open. The hall is blue sky. The rooms are all vacant and vague. The east wall beats on the west wall. At the center, nothing. going.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.